in the Old Testament scriptures where God wanted to use an animal to perform a sacred purpose. The animal must be one that a yoke has never been put on. When God wants to use an animal for a sacred purpose, his first rule is, I'm the first one to use it. The first use is mine. Jesus had to be there in Jerusalem on this day. Jesus had to make it to the Passover on this day because he had to enter the city on the Monday before the Passover on Friday. Here's why. God had declared in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12 is where God gives all the regulations of the Passover. and We may not have been aware of this, but when you observe the Passover as a Jewish family, you didn't just eat any old lamb. You didn't just go to the flock and pick a lamb and slaughter it and that was your Passover lamb. You put the blood on the door and ate it. God instituted in Exodus chapter 12 that the Passover lamb was to be selected on the 10th day of the month, five days before the Passover. The Passover is always the 14th day of the month. The Passover lamb had to be be chosen on the 10th day of the month, removed from the flock, brought inside and lived with the family inside for five days. So that when that lamb did get sacrificed, it wasn't just any old lamb out of the flock. It was a lamb that they knew, that had lived with them. It had kind of become something like a pet. This was all intentional. All of this, of course, is pointing to Jesus, who would not only live among us for three decades, but for three years would minister. And so when he is offered up as a sacrificial Passover lamb, it's not just somebody that nobody knew. We are now experiencing the height of Jesus' admiration and adoration because he's the Passover lamb that had to be chosen and the people had to know and the people had to love. And so on the day that the Passover lamb is chosen, which is Monday of that week, Israel chooses her Passover lamb, which is Jesus. Only they didn't know it. They choose their Passover lamb in the Hosannas. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's their choosing of Jesus as their Passover lamb. They just didn't know that that's what they were doing. So he has to enter the city on Monday. But in addition to that, Jesus fulfills prophecy. Way back in Daniel chapter 9, there's this prophecy about 62 weeks of years. We won't go into the into detail of the prophecy, but Daniel prophesied that 62 weeks of years after the proclamation by Artaxerxes that the temple could be rebuilt, 62 weeks of years, or 62 times 7, which is 483 years, to the day was when Daniel prophesied that the Messiah would come and be cut off. Now, that proclamation came in 445 B.C. To the day, this is the day. This Monday is the day that fulfills Daniel's prophecy, and this Monday is the day that Israel selects their lamb, and this Monday is the day that Israel selects Jesus. So, as he's traveling, all this is on his mind. All this is weighing heavily on his mind. 
as he's traveling up. And everybody around him is just as joyful and happy and as excited as they could be. You ever been, you ever been really sad when everybody around you is, ha- is happy? Take that to the extreme. That's like Jesus' journey here. His journey up to Jerusalem. So, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Verse 29, and when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. So he's coming near these two villages. Bethany is two miles east of Jerusalem. Bethphage, we don't know where it is. That's lost. It, It was apparently such a tiny village, so small that it hasn't survived. We don't even know where it was. But we know it was near Bethany, and we know Bethany because Bethany still exists. Bethany actually now goes by an an Arabic name called El Azariah. I say that only because El Azariah in Arabic means Lazarus. So the town of Bethany now goes by an Arabic name that's named after its most famous citizen of all times, the citizen who was brought back to life, Lazarus. So Bethany is two miles east of Jerusalem, but it's two miles on the other side of the crest of of the Mount of Olives. So Bethany is on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Jerusalem is on the other side of the peak. So you can't see Jerusalem from Bethany or Bethphage. So Jesus is coming up to these two villages, Bethany, Bethphage, all of them on the Mount of Olives. Bethany, by the way, means house of dates. You know that word Beth. House, house of dates. Bethphage or Bethphagi means house of figs. Bethphagi, house of figs. And then, of course, Mount of Olives. So we can kind of get a, get a sense of just how agrarian this society was. So he's coming up to these two villages. Bethany is the place where his friends are. And then there's this other village called Bethphage. <clears throat> and as he comes up on the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples ahead We don't know which two, but perhaps Peter and John, because those two were also the two that are sent later on to set up the upper room. So he sent these two ahead, saying, verse 30, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tide. So this village is now Bethphage. The village that they go into is the village of Bethphage. So Luke kind of skips over from Saturday afternoon. He skips over to Monday morning. He skips over the events of Sunday. So Jesus says to these two disciples, go over into this other village, Bethphage, and he gives them these instructions. Upon entering, you'll find this colt tied on which no one's ever sat. Untie it, bring it here. Somebody asks you, you shall say that the Lord has need of it. So he gives them these instructions, go untie. By the way, five times, five times Luke references the untying of the colt. Maybe something there. So go into this other village and get this colt that's tied with its mother. It's a colt that's never been ridden and bring it here. And if anybody says anything, tell them the Lord has need of it. So Jesus' popularity is so great. Remember, there are a multitude of people traveling with Jesus. They have overwhelmed the village of Bethany and they have overwhelmed the village of Bethphage. So everybody in this tiny little village, you know, maybe there was... 20 people that lived here, and now there's 2,000 people here, all of them following Jesus and on their way to the Passover. So the village of Bethphage, they know about this man, Jesus. And so Jesus says, if anybody says anything to you, then, then tell them Jesus needs it. Oh, we will be most honored for Jesus to use our donkey's colt. 
So he gives them these instructions to go and get the donkey. And this is where all the gospel writers are going to focus a little bit of their attention upon the donkey that's, or the, the donkey that's tied and the colt with them and how neither of them have been ridden before. Or I'm sorry, the, the colt has not been ridden before. So what's the significance of the donkey's colt? We actually don't have to guess at that because Matthew makes it clear for us because Matthew references back to the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 where Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Matthew makes it clear. Actually, Zechariah makes it clear. Matthew makes it clear by quoting Zechariah. This is the reason for the donkey. The reason for the donkey is Jesus' humility. Jesus gives the instructions to ride the donkey in order to enter the city in a humble fashion instead of an exalted fashion. Jesus wasn't tired. It's not like he almost makes it to Jerusalem. I just can't make it anymore, guys. I'm just worn. Can you give me something to ride? He's not tired. He's, he's walked everywhere his whole life. He's never, anywhere in the Gospels, ever shown mounted on anything. Except now. And so he's not doing this in order to relax a little bit or because he's tired. Nor is he doing it to exalt himself as though it's beneath him to walk into the city. He's doing it for the opposite reason, to humble himself. Why would this be a humbling thing for Jesus? It would be humbling for Jesus because historians tell us that it was not exactly a popular thing for Jewish men to ride on donkeys. Donkeys were considered to be beasts of burden. And a Jewish man was not a burden. So they didn't ride animals of burdens. So it was kind of a humbling thing. And furthermore, not just a donkey, but Jesus insists on the colt, the foal of the donkey. So this is clearly, the scripture tells us clearly, this is Jesus' self-humiliating action. Jesus does not want to enter the city on a horse He doesn't even want to enter the city on foot. He wants to enter the city making the most appropriate arrangements to humble himself as he can, to be seen by the people as the humble one who enters into the city. So that's the significance of the donkey. But what's the significance about the, the colt that's never been ridden before? Where's the significance there? The significance of the colt that's never been ridden, to see that, all we need to do is think about All the times in the Old Testament when God wanted to use an animal for a sacred purpose. Think about all these times in the Old Testament scriptures where God wanted to use an animal to perform a sacred purpose. Every time, the animal must be one that a yoke has never been put on. Think about Numbers chapter 19. That was the instructions for the red heifer sacrifice. And God specifically says, no yoke can be put on it. Or think about Deuteronomy 21. That was the details for a sacrifice that was to be made if someone was found murdered out in the countryside and nobody really knew who did it. God says, here's what you do. The first thing is you get a heifer with no yoke ever put on it and sacrifice it. Or think about 1 Samuel 6. 1 Samuel 6 is when the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines. 
And now David's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the land of God's people. And he, he takes two milk cows, which no yoke had ever been put on. And he, get this, he separates the milk cows from their young, makes the young go away, brings the milk cows in, bringing the Ark. So the Ark comes back into the land by two cows that have never had a yoke put on them. So when God wants to use an animal for a sacred purpose, His first rule is, I'm the first one to use it. It hadn't been used for any other other purpose. It hasn't pulled the yoke for anybody. I'm the first one to use it. The first use is mine. Another thing, though, to see, in all those instances that we talked about where there's an animal that no yoke has been put, every single time after the animal is used by God, it's sacrificed. So now, follow the parallel. Jesus insists on this humble animal of a donkey, not just a donkey, but the foal, the colt of a donkey that no one's ever sat on. First time it's used, first time it's served man. Brings Jesus into the city. All the other animals, the first time they're yoked, they're sacrificed afterwards. This animal brings Jesus into the city, and the animal's not sacrificed, but now Jesus goes on to be sacrificed. So you see the parallels there. But in addition to this, this also shows us something about Jesus' absolute sovereign control over nature, doesn't it? I mean, here's an animal that's never had anyone sit on it, and now Jesus is going to ride it in a parade. That's, that would say something to us about the man who has total, complete control over all of nature. So that's the significance of the donkey. That's also the significance of the fact that the donkey has not been ridden. Jesus says, untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. And they go, verse 32, and find it just just as Jesus said. They find the donkey just there. They find the colt just there. Sure enough, somebody asked them just like Jesus said. And they tell them and they respond just like Jesus said they would respond. All this happens just like Jesus knew it would happen and said it would happen. I think by this point, though, in Jesus' ministry, I think this is kind of commonplace. I don't think the disciples saw this and said, wow, Jesus said this would happen just like this. Jesus said there'd be a cult. I think that they're used to this by now. Because Jesus is the one who just knows things. He just knows things that people couldn't know. He knows about a shekel in a fish's mouth. He just knows what people couldn't know. And he knows the thoughts of people. That's the real thing. It's one thing for Jesus to know things that will happen like this. It's another thing for Jesus to know the thoughts and the hearts of people. Think of the times that Jesus has known the thoughts of people. He knew the thoughts of the Pharisees when the woman was anointing his feet and wiping her feet with her hair. He knew the thoughts of the disciples when they forgot the bread. And Jesus said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're thinking, is he mad because we didn't bring bread? Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew their thoughts when he declared the paralytic sins to be forgiven. So Jesus just knows the thoughts and the hearts of people and they're accustomed to this by now. He is the Messiah that knows all things. He is the God that knows the thoughts of man's hearts. He knows our intention. Hebrews 4.12, He knows the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now, 
Is that a scary thing? That Jesus knows all of your thoughts. That, that can be kind of a disturbing sort of thing. You know, sometimes you hear people say, you know, I, I tried to do this, it didn't quite work out, but God knows my heart. As though that's supposed to be comforting. No, God knows your heart and that's not necessarily comforting. We mean that to say, well, I had good intentions, but God does know the heart, doesn't He? So sometimes we think of this God that knows our thoughts and He knows our very intentions of our heart and it can be unsettling to us. But let me just take this occasion in the Scripture to help us to see it's not unsettling. Well, I guess it is unsettling, but it's not disturbingly unsettling. It is comfortingly unsettling. Why? Because praise God that He knows our thoughts. Because if God knew 99% of all of your thoughts and there was just 1% that He didn't know when He saved you, oh Lord, what a nightmare. What a nightmare it would be to face the Lord who is just learning 1% about you or a tenth of 1% about you. The nightmare of facing the Lord when He's learning one thought that you had. But praise God, Romans 8, 5 and verse 8 tells us that while we were yet sinners, He saved us. He chose us and called us knowing every single thing about us. We will not stand before Him and He learn anything about us. And that is the only way that we can find comfort in our salvation is knowing that the God who saved us did so knowing all things about us. This is why the Apostle John will say in 1 John 3, verse 19 and 20, By this we know that we are the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. John says, you know, when you start searching your heart and remembering all the black thoughts that you have and remembering all the bad intentions that you have, don't get discouraged because God knows those thoughts. And He knew them when He chose you and He knew them when He called you. So what a comfort that this is the Messiah that indeed knows all things. Mm -hmm. 